Good morning. We are in chapter 26 of the story, and we are going to be talking about the hour of darkness. And I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27 in your Bibles, or again, if you have your copy of the story, it's chapter 26. And I know this is uh, Palm Sunday, and it may seem a little odd to be talking about the hour of darkness on Palm Sunday. I mean, aren't we getting ahead of ourselves in the story here a little bit? Well, there's a yes and no to that. Yes, normally we would talk about this on Good Friday. But we are uh, in this series called The Story, where we have been working our way through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And I wanted next Sunday's message to fall on Easter. It is the resurrection. And so just in sticking with the story, this is how it lays out. And we are talking about the hour of darkness today. And then at our Good Friday service um, coming up this week, Pastor Jason is going to talk about some of the events that took place in Jesus' life that led to his suffering. And what I'm focusing on today is really kind of the theological part behind it. Why? it was necessary for Jesus to die for our sins. Why couldn't God have done this some other way? So let's pray as we begin. Father, we come before you, and again, we thank you for the privilege we have to look at your word. And would you speak to us today, and would you empower and guide the one who speaks? Father, you know that I've just sensed a real spiritual battle this week in preparation for this message. And I'm not sure what that's all about. But Lord, today we want to accomplish your work. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide me and help us to hear what it is you want to say to us today. This is so important. The things that we look at today stand at the heart of the gospel. And our understanding of them is really crucial to our salvation. What Jesus did for each of us. His suffering and death. His resurrection are all so significant in accomplishing our salvation. So, Lord, would you guide us today as we look at your word. In his name we pray. Amen. There is an elder in the church where Max Lucado serves whose name is Jim Barker. And he has a good friend who is a golf instructor, and that man's name is Claude Harmon. And Claude Harmon is very good. I mean, he's the kind of person people seek out if they want to learn to play golf well. And in fact, Claude Harmon has four sons who also became golf pros, golf coaches. And one day he was talking to his sons and he said, Boys, you know, when someone comes to you to learn how to play golf, you're going to see them swing and you're going to find ten things that are wrong in their swing. But your job is to find the one problem that causes all the others. Now, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would probably pay good money if somebody could help you with your golf swing and find the one thing that causes all the others. But wouldn't it also be interesting if that were true in the world? I mean, it's easy for us to look at the world and to come up with 10 different problems that are out there. You know, we look at our economy, we look at things with our government, justice system, you know, movies, entertainment, we look at the world situation, we see all kinds of problems. But is there really one problem that is the heart of it all? And if that one problem could be fixed, it would fix all the others. Well, the answer the Bible gives to that question is a resounding yes. Yes, indeed. There is one problem that is at the heart of all the others. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he cried out, 
it is finished. What did he mean by that? What was it that was finished? What was it that was accomplished when he hung on the cross? And why is the cross such a big deal in Christianity? Ironically, the answer to that question was given by his enemies. You see, the assessment of Jesus' death on the cross by the religious leaders was correct. I'd like to read for us Matthew 27, verses 41 to 44. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. As Jesus hung on the cross, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they all mocked him. And they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. That was a true statement. Jesus could not both save himself and save us also. Caiaphas, the high priest, had said, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. That was in John 11, verse 50. And John called Caiaphas' statement a prophecy. He said that Caiaphas prophesied that year about what was going to happen. But Jesus' death would not just be for that nation. Jesus' death would be for all the scattered people of God. It was necessary that he die for the salvation of others. When you look at the cross and what was before Jesus, Jesus could either save himself and we would be eternally condemned, lost in our sins, or he could save us and he could lose his own life on the cross. Our salvation depended upon his death. That's why we see this as good news. We see this as the heart of the gospel. We call Friday Good Friday because of what was accomplished there. But the world doesn't see it as good news. In fact, they don't understand it at all. To the natural man, the things of God are foolishness. And there are some today who look at what happened on the cross and they hear Christians talk about Jesus, the Son, being put to death by the Father and they think it was some sort of cosmic child abuse. To some, they think of it as a pagan idea that one would die in the place of another to turn aside the wrath of God. And they wonder, why couldn't God just pardon us? I mean, why couldn't God just kind of let our sin go? Why couldn't he say, you know, boys will be boys and girls will be girls and well, that's just the way it is and you're forgiven and that's the end of the matter. I mean, is it really so bad what we have done? I mean, if you and I forgive someone, nobody has to die, do they? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die in our place? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand something about the holiness of God and the severity of our sin. Because the cross reveals both the holiness of God and the severity of sin. 
I want us to think about the holiness of God for a moment. You know, the scripture declares that God is holy, and that is a foundational truth that runs through the whole scripture. And we see it at the very beginning in Genesis when God creates the heavens and the earth and he declares that they are good. And he places Adam and Eve in that perfect environment without sin. When God uh, finishes his creation in the six days, on the seventh day he rests and he calls that day holy. It is set apart. It is different from the other days in which we work. It is a day that is to be set apart for us to worship the Lord and to rest from our labor. A day for recreation even in our own lives. The word holy means to be set apart, different, unique, healthy or whole. Whatever is holy is healthy. It is whole. There's a richness there to it. But God is totally and utterly different from us. It is hard for us to even put into words. I mean, sometimes when we think about God's holiness, we think about the purest, the best thing we can think of, and then sort of in our mind kind of take that to an infinite level. Even that falls short of God's holiness. A.W. Tozer wrote in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. He goes on to say that holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. And because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. So God is different from all of his creation. He is that standard of perfection. Uh, He is not just better than us by a matter of degrees. He is absolutely holy. The scripture declares that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. James will say that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is perfect in his holiness. And God says to his people, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that is difficult for us. That that challenges us. That puts us sometimes, frankly, under the pile even when we think about this command to be holy because God is holy, is when we look at ourselves, we see that we are not. God's holiness attracts us on one side, we are in awe of it, but on the other side, God's holiness terrifies us. We're like Isaiah, who when he saw the vision of the Lord in the temple said, Woe to me, I am undone. For I am a man of sinful lips and I live among a sinful people. We read in the scripture that a holy God cannot look on evil. Our sin absolutely disgusts him. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, it says that there are six things the Lord hates. 
seven that are detestable to him. That's just a poetic way of emphasizing the things that God hates. And you look at those verses and it will talk about things like pride, dishonesty, murder or violence, wicked hearts, feet that are quick to do evil, false witnesses or injustice, dissension, things like gossip and slander and malicious talk. God hates those things. In the book of Revelation, when he talked about the church at Laodicea and this church that was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and Jesus said, because of that, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That word spit there is actually the word vomit. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It is though God was saying that your sin makes me sick. What else does God hate? We look at the Ten Commandments and we see that God hates idolatry, putting anything before him. He hates it when we misuse his name, and that's not just in profanity, but also in false worship. He is not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy in the sky. He is holy and his name is to be used with honor and respect. He hates it when children dishonor or disobey their parents. He hates sexual immorality, adultery. He hates divorce. He hates greed and coveting and selfishness and materialism. He hates oppression or injustice and violence. He hates death. And until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over our condition. You know, we kind of look at the people around us and we sort of think, well, you know, I'm not quite as bad as, you know, some others are. And maybe I'm okay here in this area or I'm, I'm better than maybe others we might think as we look in a relative sense. And as long as we're looking like that, we really don't get the holiness of God. God is perfect and we have sinned and we all miss the mark of his holiness. And we don't hear that much anymore. We hear more messages like, you're okay and I'm okay, you know, and that it's not such a big deal. And if there is a problem in us, well, it's probably because of our family or our upbringing or education or the environment that caused the problems. We look at television shows like Dateline or 60 Minutes or 2020, and when they analyze the world problems, can you ever imagine one of those shows coming to the conclusion at the end and saying, you know what the problem in our world is? The problem is sin. They'd never do that. That's too simplistic, or that's putting it on us rather than wanting to blame somebody else or some other institution in our world. But that is the one problem that is behind all the others. And if we could get that one problem right, our world would be different. You see, to God, sin is the moral evil that has affected the whole universe. And to preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. God hates sin the way that a mother hates the cancer that threatens to take the life of her child. 
Sin is not something that God can just sort of wink at and let go as though it's no big deal. Sin will destroy the universe if it is left unchecked. But here's the good news. That God is also a God of love. And we look at God's holiness and we look at God's love and we need to see how those two work together. Because God's holiness and God's love work together for our good. The Bible tells us that God is light. That's a metaphor for his holiness and God is love. And those two things are not in opposition to one another. And sometimes in our world, you know, they want to emphasize this idea that God is love, you know, because we feel more comfortable on that side. We feel more comfortable talking about God's love. But we need to remember that both go hand in hand. If God were just holy, if that's all that he were, if God were holy, we would die in our sins because none of us measure up to the standard of God's holiness. We would all be condemned and eternally lost because a holy God must punish sin. But on the other side, if God were love and that were all that God was, there'd be no justice in the universe. There wouldn't be a solution to the problem of man's sin because all God could say is, you know, uh, I love you or, or I forgive you or that's okay, but this problem of evil would still exist in our world. And God's holiness and God's love combine to do something unimaginable. In the wisdom of God, God chose to become a man to deal with the problem of our sin. It's John 3.16. It is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God chose to send his son into our world to address this problem that is behind all the others. Jesus became like us so he could represent us before God. And we have seen that before. We've seen that taught in the Old Testament as we have gone through this message of the story. It is found in the book of Ruth that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer like Boaz, the one who had to be related to us so he could pay the price of redemption. Jesus became like us so he could represent us before God. Jesus also lived a sinless life to fulfill all the demands of the law. That was necessary. And we've seen that in our journey through the story. In Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover was instituted and all of the Israelites were instructed to take a lamb without spot or blemish, a lamb that was perfect, And it was to be slain and its blood poured out for their sins and put upon the doorposts of their house. And if anyone did not do that, they would perish. But all whose lives were covered by the blood would live. And Paul tells us that Jesus is that Passover lamb, the one who was slain for us, the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And Jesus willingly took upon himself our sins and died in our place. It is what we call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that's at the heart of the gospel. That because 
God's holiness had been violated by our sin. Justice demanded that a penalty be paid, and that penalty was death. And Jesus stood in our place. And we have seen that in our journey through the Old Testament. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one who would bear our sins. The one who was innocent but took upon himself our transgressions and he was put to death for our iniquities. And by his wounds we are healed. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he bore the full wrath of the almighty and holy God for our sins. Theologians talk about how there were four aspects to Jesus' suffering when he hung on that cross. There was the physical suffering that Jesus went through, which was excruciating. It was horrific. All that Jesus suffered as he was beaten and mocked, crown of thorns put upon his head and nailed to a cross, there is a reason that even today we still have that word excruciating in our vocabulary. Because crucifixion was one of the most cruel means of putting someone to death that has ever been devised. And yet it is not necessary for us to insist that Jesus' physical suffering was greater than what anyone else has suffered. There were others who were crucified too. Jesus' suffering was more than that. There was also a psychological suffering that Jesus endured because of the guilt of sin. Now think about your own experience in your relationship with God. Have there ever been times when you have sinned and you have felt very, very small? Or you've wanted to run from God because of your sin, you were ashamed of what you have done. And you just, you just feel like, how could God ever forgive me because of what I've done? You have felt the guilt of sin, which is an appropriate thing to feel when we have displeased God and violated or disobeyed his word. But here was Jesus, this perfect lamb of God who had never felt that in his life. And in those hours when he hung on the cross, he became sin. And the sins of the whole world were placed upon him. And he felt the weight of that more acutely than any of us would ever feel of that. Because we are not perfect. We are not holy like Jesus is holy. And when he hung on that cross, he felt the weight of sin. And thirdly, he experienced alienation from the Father. And it's hard for us to even imagine what that was like. Jesus, who had enjoyed perfect fellowship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit in that Trinity, always enjoyed perfect love, perfect joy that they experienced in their relationship and communication and fellowship and all those things that we long for that are part of the Trinity. When he hung on that cross and the weight of sin was upon him and the Father turned his face away, Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in his life, he experienced that kind of alienation from the Father. And finally, Jesus also experienced the wrath of God that was poured out for our sins. 
It's hard for us to even comprehend what that may have been like. We cannot comprehend what it would be like to bear the full wrath of God for all the sins of the world, for all of the evil that has ever been done. Which do you think was the greatest burden he bore that day? Listen to how Matthew describes it in Matthew 27. I'd like to read for us verses 45 and following. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Eli, Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of their tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus cried out, it is finished. The word that he used there was a word that would be used for those who had paid their debt in a Roman prison. It is the word that means paid in full. Everything that Jesus came to do had been accomplished. All that remained would be his resurrection. From the lower story perspective, The cross looks like a tragic disaster. Like it wasn't supposed to end this way. This isn't the way it was supposed to go. But from the upper story, this is total victory. This is God's plan. In Revelation 13, 8, the scripture tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain from the creation of the world. That even before there was a garden in Eden, there was a cross on Calvary. That Jesus was the one who would die and he knew this from all of eternity. The one who would pay the penalty for our sins. The curtain is torn in two. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And access to the Father is now open at any time through him. The earth shook, the rocks split. Can you imagine that? Those who were dead raised to life, appearing to others in the city. And even the Roman guards crying out, surely he was the Son of God. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He died that we might live. Paul tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On October 16th, 
1987, there was a horrible plane crash that took place in Detroit, Michigan. Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff. 155 passengers were on board. All died except for one. There was a young four-year-old girl, Cecilia, who survived that crash. And when the rescue workers came to where that plane had gone down and they looked at the disaster and they saw this young little girl walking among the wreckage, they couldn't believe that she was on the plane. And they checked the records, the flight records, and she had indeed been on that flight. And they wondered what had happened that she might be spared. And what had happened was when her mother realized that the plane was going to be going down, her mother took off her seatbelt and knelt in front of her daughter and put her arms around her and shielded her from the blast that was going to come. And she took upon herself the full impact of that crash that her daughter might live. And I think of what Jesus did for us. God sent his son, Jesus, into the very heart of our sin, our humanity, to take upon himself the wrath of God, that the penalty for our sin might be paid, and that God could be just in declaring sinners like us not guilty, forgiven when we come to him. That's what the cross is all about, that Jesus is the one who stood in our place and there was no other way that God could accomplish our salvation. His death was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. And he hangs on that cross and he offers that gift of salvation to all who will believe in him. Will you receive God's love in Christ for you? Let's pray. Jesus, it is hard for us to even imagine the suffering you went through when you hung on that cross. But we thank you, and we stand in awe of you. We worship you as our Savior and Lord. And I think of Paul who said, you know, that if you were willing to die for us in that way, how can we not give you everything? How can we not make you Lord of our life and follow you with all of our heart? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you'd like him to be, would you just quietly in your own heart say to Jesus, would you forgive me, a sinner, and welcome me into your family? Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Amen.